This is Chris Edmonds, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Chris Edmonds. I'm a speaker, author, and executive consultant. I've had my own firm since 1990. That's called the Purposeful Culture Group. I've also been blessed to work with the Ken Blanchard companies full-time since 1995. So I've been around organizational development and culture and business and coaching of senior leaders for a long time. So if you're paying attention and you know a little bit about me and you're listening, you know that Chris has been doing this longer than I knew this was a thing. So <laughs> let's uh, let's pay attention. Although surprisingly, Chris has, has developed, put so much value out into the world and has never thought, hey, I need to give people a sneak peek into my brain in the form of a book. Uh, and the reason we're talking today is because we had a really cool celebration last March at South by Southwest when I learned that, hey, Chris is doing a book. Finally. So we're excited for that. Um, the book is the, the Culture Engine, a framework for driving results, inspiring your employees and transforming your workplace. It's pretty good. I read it. Um, it's, it's really good. And it centers around um, workplace culture and how to get the right culture and reinforce it. But before we do any of that, Chris, why is this I mean, so important? Why is culture such a vital part of organizations? You know, what's interesting is that most leaders have no real experience in proactive culture management, and they have a tendency to kind of do what their bosses have done and do what's been kind of demonstrated to them for years, which is managing production and performance. And the reality is all of us had great bosses. Some of us had really lousy bosses, and a lot of us have had really mediocre bosses. And the great bosses don't settle for focusing exclusively on performance. They realize that crafting a workplace culture where people cooperate, where they actually genuinely serve each other very well as, as well as their customers, where there's more cooperative interaction than competitive interaction, it actually causes us to perform better. So I'm hopeful that I can inspire leaders to pay more attention to the way their, their organization operates, to the way people treat each other, because that can cause either people to withhold information and screw their buddy. It happens all the time. Or it can be that leaning towards much more trusting and respectful and cooperative and fun and productive that's way more enjoyable for everybody, for bosses, for followers, for customers. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's one of the reasons I was excited about the book. I think in, in my mind, the funny thing about discussions of organizational culture, and I probably should have said this before I even asked you the question, um, the funny thing to me is that people think like, oh, we need an organizational culture. You already have one. You okay. may or may not know what it is, right? And yeah. it may be very production oriented, like you, like you said, and it yeah. may care. So it might care about the profit solely and the people in it might be caring about themselves solely in return and promotions. Exactly. And you don't have that collaborative effort. So you already have one. It's just a matter of making sure it's that actual right one that you want to do. And you, you lay out, um, a really good process for, uh, figuring all of that out, but then also how to reinforce it with this idea that truthfully was was um, new for me that I thought was really, really fascinating is this idea of an organizational constitution. Tell us what that is, why it's so important and how to do one. Great, because it's it's kind of... The I mean, don't tell us too much actually, because then <laughs> right. we won't buy the book, but tell us, you know, tease us. Only enough to get them to buy the book, exactly the case. It's really the core big idea of the book, and it really comes from, been doing this for over 15 years and working with senior leaders, and what I had to do 
was help leaders realize that if they just focus on performance, they're missing a whole bunch of, of kind of the, the great teaming, great individual performer opportunities there. So I had to have them realize that values were important, but then I had to make values as measurable as performance metrics. That was an interesting trick. So an organizational constitution has four elements, and I describe what they are and how you can craft your own. The first is purpose. It's present day. It's kind of the reason why the team or company exists. We can do this for a department or you can do it for a division, but an individual team member could do this as well. But purpose is very important because it kind of crafts some meaning and some direction. So once we get purpose clear, then you have to decide what the operation is really going to value from a relationship side. So that's where the values come into play, and we define values in behavioral terms. So all of a sudden, it's not about me trying to manage someone's attitude, which is kind of hard to do, since attitude is entirely internal, but I can see behaviors. And if I can get you to align to the behaviors that are going to demonstrate better teamwork, better cooperation, being nice to people, then that's going to move our culture more towards that inspirational, values-aligned, high-performance kind of place. The last two pieces are the pieces that are actually um, probably more uh, frequently done by companies, which is about strategy and about goals. So those are, again, pretty much aligned to uh, managing production, managing performance. The pieces that are a little interesting are purpose, and values and behaviors. So there's an obvious question in there that I that I then have to ask, um, and I think I know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway, because part of the Constitution is strategy, right? And that brings to mind this gigantic debate between does culture eat strategy for breakfast? Does strategy eat culture for lunch? Do they all yeah. get together for dinner? What? Where do you place these two? Yeah, I think I'm very much in the camp that culture drives everything. And it drives plans, it drives decisions, it drives actions, which means obviously it impacts strategy and its implementation or the lack of implementation. But there's so little conscious awareness of the power of culture that I, I feel is, is part of what I hope this book does is it increases leaders' awareness that if the culture supports the opportunities we have, the new markets we could go in, the demands that our customers place on us, we're going to be able to move more nimbly. We're going to be able to respond more quickly. We're going to be able to make money. Making money is a good thing. But, but the strategy alone is simply about markets, it's about opportunities, it's about production, and it could be about creativity. But if you don't have a culture that supports those things, then that's all going to crash pretty much around you very quickly. Hmm. No, I, I totally agree. Uh, I'm in a similar mindset, even though I love, I love strategy. The podcast is about the intersection of leadership, innovation and strategy. I think so often the critical mistake a lot of people make is that they create a strategy that works great on paper and works great in their analysis, but they themselves are the wrong organization to implement that strategy based on their culture, based on what people can do it. And then, so that, that to me triggered this gigantic, oh, maybe it's not about strategy, it's about execution. And we spent like the entire 1990s overly focused on execution when what we really needed is just to figure out, you know, it's, I think it, I put it as it was a seed question, but I put it as culture and strategy should just get together for dinner. They should date more often because they <laughs> both um, are important. I want to clue in on another thing you said though, when you were describing the organizational constitution, because I think this is a, this is a key thing that I got out of the book that I don't want to overlook. 
it's this idea that you know if if anybody works at a at a decently sized company for long, you will see a successory, right? Or you will see a statement of core values or something that says <laughs> this is what we aspire to. And that's the sort of values idea, but the problem is they're they're always very internal, teamwork, attitude, whatever. I love the idea of no no no, we're going to focus this on behavior metrics. Exactly. And what's funny to me is that um, I, I make the leap to the families that I see that have really strong positive cultures because the thing that I always remember growing up, whether it was me or watching friends of mine, nobody ever says, you know, hey, you're a, you're a Smith and we're about teamwork or you're a Smith and, we, and we're about, you know, justice. You say, no, hey, you're a Smith and that's not how Smiths act. And exactly. that's the big sort of key. Then, and the funny thing is, it's sort of the cyclical thing, right? Because as you act, so you believe, and as you believe, so you act, and they both can influence each other. The only one we can measure, though, is the behavior. I'm guessing that's, that's why you threw it in. But I mean, you, you can elaborate more on that idea. You're exactly right. Because if I again, I go back to the core question I had to face, where I've got leaders of teams and divisions that are used to performance metrics. They have dashboards everywhere. My God, of all kinds of different important black and white dashboard-like tools that tell them about the production, about their market share, etc. I needed to kind of get to as practical black and white a measurement as possible around values and behaviors was as close as we could get. So the more we got behaviors defined, so in other words, classic example, very common value that organizations love is integrity. So then I said, so what do you mean by that? And how do you measure whether or not people are actually doing it? And I get the RCA dog look, the kind of, what do you exactly mean measure? Well, putting those posters with all those values on the wall hasn't necessarily aligned practices and behaviors. So if we can kind of measure these, if we can get leaders to model these, if we can say integrity means you keep your promises. If you make a promise, that means you have to act to keep that commitment to make that promise come true. If something comes up that causes you to miss a deadline in advance, you say, here's what just happened. Here's what got in the way. Here's my plan. So it's there's this, there's this wonderful set of interactions and behaviors that you can count on if people embrace the values. And you can, you can hope that when you say, we're going to be a team that honors integrity, that everybody knows what you mean and everyone acts as you wish. But it's unlikely without some formal statement. In essence, you're crafting and paving a road through the jungle. You're putting lights on it and saying, walk here. That's what we want to do with the valued behavior. Yeah, I think that's that's crucial. I mean, en Enron had a wonderful, beautiful prose-like statement of core values. And we all know how well their behaviors work. Uh, the the other thing that I wanted to I wanted to touch on because I saw, I saw this as a welcome relief in in the book is this idea that I think a lot of organizations sometimes suffer from mission drift. When it was three or four people in a garage somewhere, there was a strong you didn't need a constitution because there was a, everybody was of like mind. And as you add people into that equation, sometimes you drift away from mission, you drift away from culture because the people don't know how to bring it in. And I love that you address in the book that sort of hiring element. But talk about how how important it is to approach hiring through this lens of culture and the, and the constitution. 
Well, the, the idea is once you kind of formalize the expectations of what a good job looks like from a purpose standpoint, values, strategy, and goal standpoint, everybody you bring in, particularly a leadership hire, but even a frontline player, has a tremendous impact on their team, whether or not they're going to embrace those four things in the Constitution <laughs> or not. So you kind of got to invert at least this is the case for many of my clients, they got to invert from talking about skills and talking about past accomplishments for a potential candidate that you're going to you know, kind of hire, bring in, you actually start to speak about what are the values that you're looking for? If you want teamwork, if you want justice, you have to pose questions for these folks in the hiring that asks them to share their impressions. So if you ever face this kind of ethical dilemma, what would you do? Or what did you do when you saw this unfairness happen? And people are going to be maybe taken aback by it, which is not a bad thing in my opinion, because you might get more honest reactions. But if you're not hiring 70% based on values, if you've got a values mix in play that you're looking for, you're going to be very unhappy because it's unlikely that the luck of the draw is that you're going to find someone that perfectly embraces your behaviors. So you have to be very, very intentional about it. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. And, and what I think is weird about it is that we're such a um, scan your resume for keywords, looking for certain past experiences <laughs> and skills hiring world and what's what's weird about that is that almost all the stuff you're scanning for i can train someone to do that right yes you save me six weeks right if because you you already know how to do that and so i'm gonna hire you but if but if you have the wrong values you're just gonna call it you're saving me six weeks but i'm gonna get two years of agony as until you figure out that you're not a fit in my organization if you even figure that out you might end up changing the organization and then we're we're even worse off Exactly. You know, it reminds me of, of Zappos and, and, and uh, Tony Shea and, and his team have been really kind of bragged upon and in the spotlight because of their unique culture. And was that culture going to change when, when Amazon bought them? But they still have the buyout. So in, I think, the first 90 days, um, you can choose to leave the Zappos organization. They will give you $2,000 to leave. And they'll particularly do so. In other words, you can choose to leave, but they'll also help you decide to leave if the values match is, is really that bad. Because the agony of two years costs you way more than $2,000. So there's some very interesting kinds of organizations that are being very proactive about making sure that the right people come into the organization and stay in the organization. Yeah, they're, they're figuring out the dollars and cents uh, follow culture, right? So culture matters because dollars and cents follow it as something ironically that Chris has known for a very long time. Finally, <laughs> finally putting it to book in uh, in the culture engine. So I encourage people to check to check that out to figure out how to do this sort of previously murky, but now a little more clear idea of shaping culture. Chris, I want to transition though from that book to you and ask you our two questions that we ask everybody. Uh, the first being, what are you reading right now? Beyond proofreading your own book, because we're recording this before it's out. What are you reading right now? You know, I just got a book called Toyota Kata which is about a, a, a different view of the Toyota approach, the manufacturing approach, and it's about continuous improvement. And, and it's basically about how Toyota embraces those principles of continuous improvement and asks leaders to behave in ways that inspire their followers, their team members, to basically change their behaviors, to embrace 
this continuous improvement idea and how the team members themselves embrace behaviors. And of course, why this is really attractive to me is the behavioral alignment piece. So I'm really intrigued at that because I've, you know, we've studied continuous improvement for years and, and um, there's been a lot of folks that have put a lot of money into trying to do that. And Toyota still does it very well. So, so that's what I'm reading now. I also read a bunch of mysteries and novels and murder things and stuff like that, which takes me way away from the business mind for a little bit. Yeah, everybody needs some incubation time chewing on something unrelated to their to their field. So, no, that's that's awesome. And then the the book is uh, is is out is is launching. Let's say it's by no means launched, right? But it makes me wonder still, what's what's next for you? What's on the horizon as, as part of spreading this message or even what's what's the next message? What's next for you? You know, it's a great question because we're very much focused right now. We're roughly a month out uh, from, from from the launch. So there's there's wonderful opportunities for me to interview with folks like you, uh, with, with some other journalists and bloggers. And so it's great to be talking about this. And so this is really top of mind. Um, but one of the conversations I had earlier this week with a journalist um, asked me about families. And you just said it yourself, about the Smith family, about this is how we act. And I think there might be an opportunity uh, to not only there's there's wonderful opportunities in furthering the organizational constitution and and within teams I think there's there's some opportunity there but I, I'm intrigued a bit at the next book maybe looking at helping families uh, align themselves to some practices that are going to be uh, something that all family members would be proud of something that would help kids be more successful in this very fast-paced, very interesting world we live in today. Um, so that that might be the place. I haven't done a formal proposal yet, but uh, I've got three or four proposals I'm working on. So uh, we'll see which one kind of uh, gets some greetings from, from publishers. No, that's that's really cool. As a, as a father, as a fairly new at this whole father gig thing, that's pretty cool. So we'll be looking out for that. In the meantime, though, I'll have to rely on the Culture Engine, a framework for driving results, inspiring your employees, and transforming your workplace. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. David, couldn't be happier. Very much appreciate your, your mentorship and your guidance with your experience here just a year ago. And uh, I've, been, I've been picking your brain quite a bit. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Hey everybody, it's David from the Leader Lab Podcast. I just want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast episode. And I want to remind you that you can get even more content from us if you connect with us online. We're at Twitter, twitter.com slash LDRLB, Facebook, facebook.com slash LDRLB. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher, or just subscribe to our email newsletter and we'll email you every single time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for being a part of the community. Look forward to giving you even more great content.